What's in a parking lot? I suppose that's a little less catchy than Shakespeare. But our guest today asked just that question. It has led her down a fascinating road that examines the benefits we gain and the sacrifices we make when we fill our world with billions of parking spots. This is Logos-ish. Today, we are talking all things parking and religion. Hey guys, welcome back to Logos-ish. This is John, ready for another exciting conversation today. Our topic today is the parking lot. And that's all I'm going to say for right now. You'll see how it folds out and how it fits in with our normal topical material and how it, you know, paves the way. (laughs) Brian's already giving me this look like, I cannot believe you just said that. Brian, I'm practicing my dad jokes, man. I've got two months to perfect these. John, I'm going to say that you have forever to perfect dad jokes. You do not have to do that while we're recording in the podcast. No, you literally I, have the rest of your life. I need this to be ready by the birth of my child. Have y'all decided on a name yet? Yes, but I'm not telling you. Ah, because you know that my campaign for it to be August needs to continue? Fair enough. Yeah, I really think we should release a Twitter poll about this and see what happens. How are you doing, Brian? Uh, life is pretty good right now. We just got finished with annual conference uh, in Virginia. And for people who are United Methodists who listen, you know that this has been a terrible season to do that because a lot of them are still online. And ours was horrible. So the best part of my day is that it's over. And we don't have to do that for another year. It's always good to feel like, you know, all the business meetings and the kind of dry stuff is out of the way so you can get back to doing what you want to be doing. So I think we should go ahead and and bring our guest in. Our guest today is Dr. Laura Hartman. She has been doing some really, really fascinating and interesting research about religious communities and parking lots and what their parking lots say about them. Dr. Hartman, it is really great to have you today. Uh, Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm honored to be here. Can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Sure. So my degree is in the study of religion with a specialty in environmental ethics, and that's because I have always had an oversized environmental conscience. And one thing that my brain specializes in doing is thinking about the environmental impacts and the ethical impacts of things that other people might overlook, things you might take for granted. So my interest in parking lots is an example of that. Most of us take parking lots for granted. I've heard it said that parking is something that we always expect to be there, but we don't wanna have to think about. Well, guess what? I'm here to think about it. Throughout my short academic career, I have been trying to lift up the neglected things that many of us perhaps could think about more from an ethical perspective. So um, I have a strong interest in ethical consumption, what we consume, partly because I am aware that a lot of our consumption is causing environmental damage, right? So how do we respond to that? What do we do? do? Um, There's an impulse to be as pure as possible, right? To stay away from the damage, to try to make myself better and clearer and more ethical as an individual. And so there are, you know, consumption decisions that you can that you can make. So again, some of these neglected things. So here's a, a true story. When I was in college, I, I got really into this idea about minimizing the impact of my consumption decisions. And so 
it occurred to me that I could reuse my dental floss. And I, I did. I would, I would make each space of floss. I would make each one last two days. I would floss with it and then I would rinse it and leave it to dry. And then the next day I would pick it up and floss with it again. Well, I guess what my college roommates thought of that. <laughs> it was not their favorite of my habits. And I guess that's partly an example of how it's possible to take this too far or it's possible to be so focused on my own consumption that I neglect other important values, such as neighbor love to my roommates. I guess what I'm getting at is that it's important to think about maybe the, the small individual acts of consumption that do have an impact, but in the end, it's not about me as an individual, right? It's about us as a community. For the environmental impacts, it's about the whole planet and it's about smaller scale communities and how those communities impact it. So my research then has taken a turn away from individual choices. I no longer reuse my floss, you will be happy to know. I figured out that I could skip a day. I could do every other day and it would have the same basic impact, right? I would use floss at the same rate as if I reused it every day. That may not be recommended by your dentist, but that might be a better solution. Yes. Yeah, that might be a better solution. Or in fact, there are people who don't floss at all. Not that I recommend that either, but you know, there are many options out there. Yeah. As somebody who has a lot of experience with dentists and dentistry, I can say that the advent of the Christmas tree brush, the brush that goes between your teeth, ah. uh, in addition to flossing, I don't know if you guys have encountered this yet. It is a, a new trend that is being recommended among dentists. It's a small wire brush piece that goes between your teeth. It, ha it has a Christmas tree shape, kind of like a lot of brushes that you would use to clean musical instruments with. And it's designed to be inserted between your teeth. And, and that is a very much a reusable thing, right? It's essentially like a toothbrush that is small enough to fit into the crevices. And it is awful. It is like an <laughs> instrument of torture. It is a just plague upon this earth that I'm going to rant about and then probably use a little later this <laughs> afternoon. <laughs> so, I nice. mean, real choices do make a difference. They do. But this is... For me, this is one of the major conundrums of my career. I started off with a great interest in individual choices, mostly because I didn't understand society level stuff, not a sociologist, don't really comprehend like how do we think about the collective. A lot of our religious traditions, especially Christianity, has a lot of insight about individuals. And so I and, and there's insight about both, but but I was noticing the stuff about individuals. That's the way that ethics was taught to me, you know, religious ethics, like about my choices in a fallen world, right? That's where I was really focusing. At the same time, you can drive yourself crazy with this kind of thing because of my specialty of, of sort of noticing the impacts of tiny things we might take for granted. Every choice becomes an ethical choice, like basically every single choice that I make throughout my day, which is a lot of them. What I wear, what I eat, what dishes I use, how I wash those dishes, you know, I mean, it just, it can keep going and going and going. Ad nauseum. There's the value of being reflective. And I think that's significant. We should all reflect on our choices and we want our actions to align with our values as much as we can. But there's also the reality that the kind of standards that I was holding myself to are not standards that's reasonable to expect of most people, right? So what's the point in terms of impact? I'm concerned about the fate of the planet, right? And so if, if the fate of the planet hangs on everyone being as conscientious as I was trying to be, I think that's kind of a lost cause, right? I mean, we have, we have to be realistic about what people are likely to actually do in their, in their lives. But secondly, my impact is small. 
it's only significant on the world if a lot of people do it. But if what I, if what we're asking people to do is shiver in the dark and knit a sweater out of a mop head, then that's not going to be very attractive. So the shift that I've been taking has been a shift towards looking at not politics, because I don't understand politics. I can I can barely engage with that world, but something just shy of that, like the medium scale, which is for me, the congregation. Okay, a, a congregation is more than one person, right? But it's not as big as a whole city or a whole state or something like that. So congregations can make decisions about their consumption and other things that they do that relate to the natural world and the environment, they can make decisions that have a bigger impact than individuals. So it, it, it matters more than an individual choice does. Um, and there's this collective support for one another, because that's the other thing. It's really hard to swim against the current all the time. It's really hard to expect myself to like to never use plastic or whatever, like whatever those those individual eco consumption uh, ideals are. Those are hard to hold yourself to because you're going against the tide all the time. There's very little collective support. But in a congregation, I mean, that's what a congregation is. It is a collective of support. So if the congregation as a whole then is exploring some of these environmental options together, they can do these things as a body and have that internal support for one another and potentially, again, have that support within like the denomination between congregations as well. This is a level that, uh, of action that I'm really interested in right now. That's the direction that I'm taking with parking lots. Yeah, I know we really struggle to have those conversations sometimes. I, I, in our community that we're currently living in, we're actually getting ready to, to move. But we have noticed so many challenges that arise in the intersection between wandering or desiring to have a, a smaller material footprint and then also just living your life, especially when it comes to things that you really need to be put into place on a social or industrial scale. I'm thinking about like recycling programs and things like that, mm -hmm. where mm -hmm. I, our community a, a few years ago announced that they were starting a recycling program and we, we were very, very excited. And then we went to go figure out how and where to drop off the recycling and this and that and so on and so forth. And very quickly discovered that the only things that were being recycled were tires and TVs. Oh, wow. And, and not even <laughs> new TVs or anything like that, but TVs that people had owned, say, since the 60s or something like that. And there, there were some, I guess, some metals or something that were worthwhile with the recycling. But the structure of where we live and the access to larger sort of systems that would mm -hmm. reduce our material footprint at least a little bit you know recycling itself has received some critical attention lately but having access to those larger systems does I, I think at least make a difference in terms of how you make your individual choices yes no that, that's that's right and this is this is the conundrum of um, environmental concern, right? I mean, if you speak with environmentalists or, or people who care about the planet and creation care, they're going to say, you know, we really need to change these larger systems. It would be lovely, for example, if the products that have the packaging that you would like to recycle, if those products were packaged in a different way, right? Maybe they could be packaged in a reusable container um, that, that you could then return to the store, 
So you didn't have to mess with recycling per se. You could just bring that container back to the store. There are other models and other ways that we can set up these systems, but it's not something that one individual can do. However, I think that congregations are a really good size to help make changes. Congregations are uniquely situated because they are a collective of people. So you have the voice of several people, not just one, but also they occupy a moral space. If you have clergy coming together and saying, we need recycling, that has a really different sound to it than individuals who are not clergy coming together and saying, hey, we need recycling. Because there's a certain reputation, there's a certain moral gravity that comes with that kind of message from people who have this status. Or if it's not clergy, maybe it's like an entire church group of some kind, you know, coming to, coming together. Yeah, there's a certain level of of privilege like that, that just kind of exists within our society that if leveraged appropriately could actually have some positive benefits. Many of us have seen it have negative benefits or negative results in the past, but we can certainly use our influence well, so to speak. Yeah, let's use that power for good. Because it's there, whether we want to admit that it's there or not. And so tell us a little bit about parking lots in general and how this comes into, how, how does that slab of asphalt that we drive over constantly have a huge impact on what your research is. Yeah. So full disclosure, I live right next door to a church parking lot. And I Same. do. Okay. Well, so I've always been thinking about this. Uh, you know, I've been thinking about this for a long time. Parking is one of my favorite things to feel upset about. But when I, when I moved into this house, it was right in my face all the time. And this is part of my motivation to actually do what I've been contemplating doing and research this topic. Parking relates to a larger issue, which we call car culture. We live in a society where you need a car to get around, and that's a given. Almost nobody questions it. And our society and our buildings and our streets and our cities are all set up to facilitate car use. I've heard it said that if you were a Martian looking down on the earth and observing, you might be mistaken that and think that the people are not the ones in charge in a city, but that it is in fact the cars who are the, the main organism that lives in that city because they're the ones who take up the most space. Car, our cars take up more space than the humans do in terms of if you add up all the parking and all the streets and, and all of that, a lot of resources get poured into our vehicles, right? And our new our newest structures are created in order to facilitate the use of the car, um, like drive through this or that, right? Or at almost any store that you go to is going to have a, a huge lagoon of parking around it. So that's car culture. And there are many benefits to car culture, but there are also many drawbacks. And I think that it's important to highlight some of those drawbacks. One drawback is the people who it leaves out. Not everyone can afford to own a car. Not everyone is able to drive a car. So we're leaving out those in poverty and we're leaving out people with disabilities, elderly, young people. These are people on the margins. My goodness, our religion talks about the margins, right? People on the margins are the ones that we should be putting at the center. Well, car culture does not put those people at the center, okay? It puts people in those categories at the margins and keeps them there. I'm sure you know an elderly person who is terrified of someday losing their driver's license, right? Because they will be stranded. They, they will be really just stuck without any way of getting where they need to go because they live in a place, most of our elderly, because most of our population lives in places where you need that car simply in order to get around. So 
it's important to question that whole system. It's, it's like the oxygen we breathe. Most of us don't even think to question it, right? But as Christians with discerning vision and with a vision that's informed by our moral values, not by the values of the world, we should question this. Anything that seems like a given should be subject to scrutiny based on our religious values. And our religious values say that, that we should be putting the vulnerable at the center. Our religious values also say that we should be caring for creation, right? And um, as I'm sure you're aware, cars cause a lot of damage to creation. So avoiding that would be lovely, would it not? Okay, so then the role of parking lots in car culture. So I sort of established there are these downsides, and so we need to be skeptical of car culture. There are alternatives that provide mobility, but not necessarily using the car. And so I think as, as Christians, it's important to be able to envision those alternatives and to fight for those alternatives. So parking lots, the role of parking lots in perpetuating car culture, it's a little bit like a drug dealer providing drugs. Like the drug dealer isn't forcing you to take drugs, but they're making them available, right? A parking lot is not forcing you to drive your car in order to get to that destination, but it's making it easy. If we have a destination that has no parking or has very little parking only for people with ADA requirements, let's say, who truly need it, then the rest of us will need to find an alternative. Now, businesses are worried about this. Uh, in, in business world, they talk about the need to provide parking so that customers will come. There's a worry that if there isn't parking, they'll lose their customers. And churches have a similar mindset. They have a similar concern about um, losing customers. Churches consider themselves to be somewhat like businesses, right? We're interested in attracting members. Churches are worried we're losing members. A lot of mainline churches are, okay? And so there's the concern if we were to do something like cut down on our parking lots, that would be the, the threshold category. That would be the final straw. And then we wouldn't get any, wouldn't get new people coming. It needs to be easy to visit, right? Otherwise people will not come. I, I get that concern, but I think there's probably a distinction to be made between the regular members and the visitors. Maybe you have a few visitor spots too, but what do we ask of our regular members? Can we ask our regular members to do something else? I think it's possible because here's the deal. Parking lots facilitate car culture. They've shown that if you expand the lanes on a road, more traffic will come. If you reduce the lanes on a road, the traffic will diminish. It, it really is if you build it, they will, they will occupy it in terms of cars. And the same is true of parking. If it's a destination that people are committed to attending or to, or to arriving at, they'll find a way. At the same time, there's a role for churches to use their powers of lobbying and influence in a society for churches to use those powers to really increase transit service, to really increase bike lanes, to really increase good walking infrastructure, right? To make all the alternatives, which do exist, to make those possible. So that's part of what I want to call on churches to do is to really question that car culture, recognize that it does not, it does not create the kingdom, right? Car culture is not bringing us closer to God. In fact, it's probably bringing us further away from God. And we can talk more about how cars do that. They're isolating. They're very, they're very insulating. They dissociate us from our bodies so that we're not like walking, for example, is much more integrative for each individual because we are physically using the bodies that God gave us to do what God gave, made them to do, right? Walking is beautiful. In the Bible, there's so much walk imagery, right? So many metaphors about walking with Jesus and that sort of thing. Well, if we don't walk in our lives, then what does that even mean, right? When we sing those hymns or we read those prayers, do we even know what walking is? Not if we don't walk anywhere. We, we've definitely disassociated the fact that 
whenever we read like the gospel, when it talks about how they got from place to place, yeah, they walked there. They <laughs> like that's how they did it. Yes, um, they did. And that, and I'm just going to speak truthfully about myself and the ministries of the churches where I'm served. There wasn't a whole lot of walking of anywhere. It was, yeah. let's drive here, drive there. And I mean, you're right. Like that's a contributing factor to this car culture. It just I, I, is. And I think that churches can ask more of our members. I think we can ask them to challenge themselves to try to walk more. We want to arrive at church in a, in a good frame of mind. We want to arrive at church at our best. Driving does not make us our best selves usually. I mean, I'm sure there are exceptions or it can be complicated, but for a lot of us, walking calms the mind, you know, focuses the spirit. I once interviewed Eric Jacobson. He's a, a pastor at Presbyterian Church in Tacoma, Washington, and he wrote some, some books about urbanism and Christianity. And Eric Jacobson, he said to me, I deliver a better sermon if I have walked to church. And there were reasons for that. Um, one is the, the physical exercise, because that really does, you know, connect with one's mind and, and helps you get your spirit in, in alignment. But also, he says, it allows me to encounter my neighbor. In one of his books, Jacobson retells the story of the Good Samaritan. Um, he imagines someone who has been harmed and is by the side of the road. But he says, in today's world, if we were driving by, we wouldn't be looking at that harmed person. We shouldn't be. We should have our eyes on the road for safety's sake. And in fact, it takes a pedestrian to see others, to really encounter the neighbor as a human being, he says, you need to have a walking pace. Now, I think it's a little more complicated because I know that as drivers, we do often stop for other drivers in distress, right? And that can be a version of the, the Good Samaritan right there. But I, I also take his point that a human pace is a walking pace and that we have more time and space to encounter one another as children of God if we're not encased in two tons of steel and plastic and glass. There's an insulating capacity to those cars that I think works against the vulnerability that we're asked to offer to one another. Well, and I think it's also insulating that human beings are, we're not meant to go 25 miles an hour, let alone 75 miles an hour, which I, I can't yeah. on some roads near my house. And almost everywhere I drive, I'm driving by myself. Well, and one so, of my... Like, favorite practices for connecting with a new place and space when I get there is walking it, mm -hmm. especially engaging in a practice like walking the city. You know, we, we had Michael Beck on several months ago and, and he's big on, you know, talking about having a church take a Sunday and reconnect with the community by mm -hmm. walking the community and mm -hmm. meeting people and speaking with people and often engaging with them a little more prayerfully. Sorry, y'all, I am now surrounded by animals. They have broken into the room, so you may hear them a little bit in the background as, as I'm talking. But You're like Francis of Assisi. They're just everywhere. They're just everywhere. The Part of the reason why I'm off camera right now is because my dog is insisting that I be touching her at this moment mm -hmm. and, you know, petting her and giving her all the attention in the world. But, you know, that's the point of connection is when we get together and we talk so much about faith communities that are in some sense disconnected from their local neighborhood because the majority of their members have driven in from a radius of, of 10 miles or more. And so you wind up with urban churches that should be connected with their neighborhoods, but instead they wind up with, with a membership that looks and acts and it has very, very different assumptions 
compared to the folks that are living right next door to the church because of the lack of connection there because you have the literal gap the little literal space gap between where folks are actually living and where they're coming to church so i actually have a a story about that my family started attending my home congregation like in the 40s when it was a brand new congregation and it was because my grandparents had five children and when the fifth one finally came they didn't have space in the car anymore for all of the kids at one time. So they had to walk to church. And so they picked the closest church to them. And that's how my family became United Methodist. And it's not a, you know, an ecological choice or, or even an ethical choice. It was just a reality for them. Like they had to choose to do that. And now 70 years later, my family drives to that church today from their houses and other places. Like, and I'm just like, it's very ironic, like, like how that, like the circumstance and how that impacts uh, just different stages in people's lives. And it's a very common story, at least the part, the last part about driving, driving in. Yeah. There, you know, there are different models of church membership, right? There's, I think it's called the parish model where it's based in the neighborhood. And in theory, those people probably could walk to the church. And then there's I don't know, maybe it's called the consumer model where people shop around and they pick a church that they like and it doesn't matter if they have to drive to get there or not. They're making their own individual choice. So, you know, that's a bigger conversation about what the church should be and how the church should relate to its its neighborhood. But, you know, the church parking lot that I live right next to, I live in kind of a, a halfway inner city part of my small city. And you know, this neighborhood, the people who attend that church, their parents' generation and their grandparents' generation did live in this neighborhood. Over time, this neighborhood became less white and less affluent, and the church members moved out, but they still come in to attend church here. So, and some churches, of course, flee, do the white flight thing with their congregations, right? And they flee to the suburbs um, where nobody's likely to walk because it's not even set up for walkers. But this neighborhood at least is set up as a walking neighborhood, but the the congregation for the most part doesn't live here. So it, yeah, that's a, a tough situation. And and I just want to be able to name that that car culture is the reason why why our cities are set up like this right? Everything is far flung. The distances are far because we have cars. In a few generations ago, when people did not have as much access to cars, cities were much more compact and walkable. But because the assumption has changed, the assumption now is that everybody's using their car all the time. Now everything is more spread out, partly to make space to park all those cars, right? Because the parking lots themselves are large and they take up quite a bit of that space in between the buildings. And partly because we can. If we can, you know, drive, most of us in our modern lives physically move much farther than our ancestors ever did because we're, you know, we're driving out to the suburbs for the doctor's appointment and then we're driving into the city for the um, event and then we're driving over to our child's school or, you know, there's just, there's a lot of places that we go. Used to be, we just didn't go that many places. And so that mobility that we developed when uh, cars became the predominant means of transportation in America and maybe elsewhere in the world too, creates a concept that's called suburban sprawl, which then Mm -hmm. only makes it further and increases our need for cars. But one of the most interesting like factoids about kind of the history of, of cars in general is that there used to be mass transportation in our country. And everyone who hasn't done their history on that, like is probably shocked that now things that 
I might advocate for in terms of like, it would be nice if we had like trains that went everywhere because they are in general better than cars in terms of their environmental impact, et cetera. And social impact, I would, mm-hmm. I would, I would say it's how it's how you meet your neighbors. Neighbors would see each other at the transit stop, right? Right. And, and then the car companies bought the literal stations and shut them down and tore up the tracks. Like that's literally what happened in America. And you can still see where some of the tracks were, and at least in my part of my part of the country. So can we take a turn towards advocacy real quick and talk about you know what what is the expectation here? What is the hope? if we to make the assumption that you know we want to reshape our local communities and our our social sphere to be more walking friendly or perhaps more public transit friendly because i can say as a person who really values my freedom and my ability to go great distances whatever alternative that i i could see to this this challenge uh, i would hope would not reduce that freedom in any way shape or form or for sure might alter it in some way. So so what do you think congregations should be aiming for, both as advocates at the civil level, but also w- within their personal spaces? So agreed about the freedom. And definitely like there's there's no going back. We're not going to undo the car structure to uh, to as large a degree as I might hope, but I think we can temper it. So what we're what we're hoping for are a couple of things. Congregations can use their advocacy to help make transit better and you know and serve their own locations on Sunday, let's say, or you know, so that it is in fact an option to use transit to get to their um, to their worship services. Congregations can also make sure that they are welcoming to alternate modes. Is there a bike rack at your church? If a pedestrian arrives, do they have to walk through a a, a hideous lagoon of parking in order to just get to the building at all? Which door is open? Uh, Many of these older churches have a a street-facing door and a parking lot-facing door. Are they both open so that walkers don't have to walk through the parking lot? What's that like? And, you know, are there there carpool options? I know carpools can be a bit onerous in terms of administering them, but they also can build so much community and so much fellowship among members um, and can be such a great opportunity to show neighbor love and that sort of thing. So I think that that's another thing to sort of advocate for and and, and create um, at the local level. But then additionally, we have not gotten into this aspect yet. Um, I'm sorry, because I got all excited about cars, but there's another aspect of this, which is simply land use. If our congregation has a certain plot of land, it's our responsibility to see to it that that land is expressing God's love for creation as much as possible. God speaks through the soil as the soil generates plants and and ecosystems, right? All of all of the, the things that would happen if you just left a patch of land alone, it would probably grow up into a forest or something like that. It would, it would have birds and insects and other creatures living in it, right? I mean, you can imagine this beautiful forest that, that would happen on basically any plot of land if it were left alone, right? And that is a manifestation of God's love and beauty. And that is praise for God when that happens. So if we're going to stifle that, if we're going to pave it over, we better have a darn good reason to do that. Okay, because that's the opportunity cost. That's the alternative. If, if we're going to silence the praise of some of God's creatures, 
then we need to be doing it for reasons that are really valuable. And, you know, facilitating humans worshiping God, that is valuable. But I, I want to just make sure that we, we know that there is a cost there. Now, the parking lot itself, it may be truly necessary, and it may, in fact, be the right size. We should talk about, you know, some some congregations have parking lots that are too big for what they really need. So it's worth maybe reducing it. But if it is, in fact, the right size, there are still things that can be done to make that parking lot express our love for God's creation as much as possible. There are ways to um, to make the pavement less damaging. Pavement that is typical pavement is a, a simple seal between the rain that falls and the soil that's beneath it. So when the rain falls, the soil remains thirsty underneath that parking lot. And the rain in, instead rolls off the parking lot and into the drainage ditch. It brings with it all kinds of things that come from our cars. Sadly, even, you know, even the least polluting cars still have various kinds of like tire dust and grease and things like that that come off of the cars, right, that have these toxins in them. And the rain, as it runs off the parking lot, collects those toxins and dumps it right into the drainage ditch, which may go into the local river or the local lake or simply down into the aquifer. Um, underground. But regardless, that's not uh, that's not something we, we want to have happen. It's much better if we have permeable pavement so that that rainwater can soak into the soil. The soil has these magical filtering properties where it, it really can affix those toxins into safe compounds so that it doesn't cause harm to the aquatic life in the river or something like that. So I'm a big fan of permeable pavement. I'm also a big fan of rain gardens. If you've got that impermeable pavement and the water is going to run off, put it into a specialized garden that's designed to collect rain. It's going to have, um, there are instructions you can find on the internet for how to do this. It's, it's, it's quite well known, but you plant special plants in there that are going to um, metabolize those toxins in a good way so that um, whatever runs off of your uh, parking lot won't in fact harm the waterways of your community. So a rain garden is a good idea. There are also, parking lots get really hot in the summer. The, they just collect that sunlight. It's like a thermal battery um, and they release the heat real slowly. That parking lot right next door to me, I tell you, it's hot. Whenever I have to walk across it I, in the summer, I go as quickly as I can because it's pretty uncomfortable. But there are ways to mitigate that too. We can plant as many trees as possible all around the parking lot and maybe within it if there are spaces for that. We can also put up solar panels. There are congregations that I'm aware of that have gotten grants to put up solar panels as a canopy over the parking lot. That's a win-win. It, it protects your vehicles from the weather um, and it generates electricity. Pretty great option, although not cheap. So you might want to get a grant for that one. And then of course, like there's the use of the space itself, right? Even if you can't get some of these green features in there, maybe it can at least be a good part of the community rather than a soulless wasteland for the neighbors to walk past. Maybe it could be a pop-up park. Maybe it could be a farmer's market. Maybe it, it could at least have, you know, a labyrinth painted on it so that it could be a prayer walk. There are so many ways to use that space creatively to inspire, to preach, to serve the community, there are organizations that allow homeless people living in their cars to park in church parking lots overnight so they have a safe place to park their cars and maybe they go into the church and use the restroom and that kind of thing. That's a wonderful way to show hospitality to our neighbors using this, this resource that would normally just sit there vacant. Yeah, I think we're all thinking quite a bit about space use, especially folks who are in, in church or faith-based community settings where we have buildings and property that are too often left just kind of sitting there for the whole week long, sitting and, and often air-conditioned with virtually nobody in them. 
maybe not super, super cold, but cold enough that, that it's different than the temperature outside. And a lot of us are thinking about this partially from an efficiency standpoint. You know, it costs a lot of money to just have the building sit there and then get used one day a week. Uh, but also from just a, a good neighborly standpoint and from a nurturing, sharing perspective. And so I really appreciate a lot of the suggestions that you've offered here, especially in terms of reshaping and redesigning the space, you know, thinking about a parking lot almost from a permaculture standpoint where you're asking some of the ecological questions that, that we might not have put up front as a priority or even thought of when we were, were doing these designs, especially 20, 30, 40 years ago, when these questions weren't necessarily at the forefront of anybody's mind. I'm curious if you have some thoughts on new transportation technologies, especially stuff like rideshare uh, and rideshare 2.0, you know, thinking about cars that are driverless cars that are offered through some sort of subscription service, which theoretically should, you know, drastically reduce the number of cars on the road because nobody needs to own one anymore. Have you factored that into any of your research at all? Yeah, a little. So driverless cars are are interesting to me. I want to mention that there is already a technology where it will pick you up you get on and it drives you to where you want to go. And then when you're at the, at your destination, you get off. It's called a bus. That already exists. And that's a wonderful way to get to church. Then you don't have to have a parking spot. Lovely. The only difference with, with what you're what I think you're describing with the, the ride shares or the driverless cars is that it happens exactly when you want it. And it will drop you right at the door instead of maybe half a block away. In terms of the effect on the parking lot, that would be really similar to a bus right? Because you you get off. Now, where does the car go when you're not using it? Well, I mean, if it's like an Uber or a Lyft or one of those, then they're going to go off and get another passenger, I suppose. So that's probably not a factor in, in parking. If it's a driverless car that you own individually, then I guess that's no different than driving yourself to church and you'd still need a parking space. Yeah. I, one thing that I've heard people say is that driverless cars might drop people off where they need to go and then just like keep circling the block until the person is ready to be picked up again. So they wouldn't need a parking spot, but they would certainly add a lot to traffic. That sounds worse, maybe. Uh, in terms of traffic, yeah. Well, yeah, uh, but 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 I, again, I just, I really want to emphasize the good old fashioned bus. Like that already exists. You can get picked up, go to your place and get off again and you don't have to do the driving. It's beautiful. And there's a professional doing the driving. So, you know, it's safer. Buses are so much safer than individuals driving cars in terms of how many crashes they get in and that sort of thing. I mean, that's a public health issue right there. Pedestrian crashes have been going up as I think you may have read that's been in the news. I mean, neighbor love, hello. Like if we care about our neighbors, we should do what is safest and we should all be riding the bus all the time. <laughs> that's what I think. So I think there, I think there's space to advocate for better buses, right? I mean, if there was a bus that went close to your house every 10 minutes you'd you'd ride it right probably and in big cities they have that why don't they have that in these smaller places where the rest of us live i think we deserve that as an option right um you know the cars give us freedom fine but we but they also box us in because we have no other choices i feel that it's very un-american not to have choices if, if a car is my only choice i feel oppressed 
So can we please create a system where I can choose? And it's a genuinely good choice between do I want to drive or do I want to take a public transit or bike or something else? Yeah. And that could certainly take us into the realm of talking about cost and investment (laughs) and Mm -hmm. any number of individual or or corporate choices that we make together. Mm Because, you know, I've lived in a lot of areas that do have bus systems, but they're, they're not great bus systems. The buses break down and they're never on time. Mm-hmm. And, you, you know, the, the choice of the bus is really a choice between do you want to spend an extra two hours on your route or do you want to get there in the next 20 minutes? Yeah. And, and that's right. just not a good choice to, you know, it's just, it's not a real choice. It's, it is, it is more than that. It is a crime against the people who have no choice because there are people who have no choice but to take that bus, right? And those people are being, their human dignity is being undermined because the system refuses to give them the the type of service that they deserve. I think we all deserve good transit options. And if and if that's not being given by our by our cities or our municipalities or our governments locally, then I think that our rights are being violated. Well, I mean, I so I live in a area where like suburban sprawl is like just horrendous. In in the city, like I, I live in the city now. I used to live in the suburbs. We have a train that just goes like within the city. There was a proposal to take it to the suburb. It doesn't go everywhere in the city. It is not perfect. But there was a proposal to take it through the suburbs to the beach because I also live near the beach. And you would have thought that that was like the most evil campaign like on the face of the earth to try to do that because there was so much marketing and advertising on just stop light rail in Virginia Beach and uh, like to the point that I had to tell the secretary at the church a couple years ago when that campaign was going on like you really can't have that on your desk like the bumper sticker can't be on your desk to defeat light rail and I'm just like what is like that sounds great because in my area where there's lots of water and there's already a train if that went all the way to the beach, I could take a ferry to go to the beach. I could take the train to go to the beach. I could drive to go to the beach if I really had to. But honestly, now, like, the only option is to drive. And then to go park in a parking lot at the oceanfront. And I just choose the one that is fund- that funds a church. So that's the, that's the only choice that I choose to make. I park in the church parking lot down there. But it, it's still, like all of those factors like what would how would that be different if people use their influence and their faith communities to like advocate for that happening rather than people getting political saying well this is bad for our community because of blah 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 and that's exactly what happened now i'm like dang i should have done something about that there are other places that have had similar issues where the the suburbs don't want the transit partly because there's an association of transit with people of lower classes or of races that one one might be uncomfortable with and that's well i mean that's not neighbor love <laughs> and you know and, and the the word that gets used sometimes is crime that we're afraid that people who are likely to commit crimes would come into our safe neighborhoods if transit was there which i think is kind of a well, it's it's a it's a false set of assumptions on various grounds, but partly, I mean, have you ever heard of a getaway train? No, it's a getaway car, right? People commit crimes using cars. 
not, not trains or buses or whatever. Ooh, I committed a crime. I have to get on the, the getaway bus. No. I also, though, I wanted to, I wanted to mention you, you, you brought up something. There's a parking lot owned by a church that is a, a place where you can, you have to pay to park there and it earns money for the church. And this might be sharing too much details. I used to, when I was in college, I interned at this congregation and they are two blocks from the ocean. So every summer from, you know, Memorial Day through Labor Day, it is absolutely insane there. And it's $10. It's the cheapest place to park on the entire. And they raise like some like $400,000 every summer for their church. It's crazy. Well, it's also like one, it's brilliant. And like how, how that like funds their entire congregation. But two, it's such a better use of a parking lot. So that's why one of the things I'm trying to do here now at my current congregation is we're trying to use our unused space in the building Mm -hmm. to become kind of a business center, business park kind of thing Mm -hmm. on our second floor. And I'm hoping that we'll, maybe we'll get more parking lot use too. Yeah. In the process, actually being better for our community. And uh, if anyone has, who's listening, has a new business startup and they need a space, contact us. You know, there, there's a church in downtown Richmond that owns a parking garage. And during the mm-hmm. week, they charge people to park there and they make a fair bit of money with that. But then, you know, on Sundays, their members can can park there. I was speaking with somebody uh, who was affiliated with that church and, and she said, it's a ministry, you know, during during the week. Sometimes some people might have their car breakdown in the parking garage or something, you know, and, and we're there to help people. And so I'm not, as you have noticed, I'm not a huge fan of cars and I'm not a huge fan of parking lots, but I know that they're needed. I know we need to have at least some of this going on. And I think it's kind of exciting to think about ways to use that parking lot more fully. If you're going to have it, like, let's use it. So I I love your idea of using having weekday uses of your building that would then require the use of the parking lot as well. Yeah, so much of this gets wrapped up, I think, in the engineering question of how what is the best way to give people the most freedom for the least cost in terms of their transportation obligations and requirements. And and I know you know when we when we said we were going to have a conversation about parking lots today, I was initially taken aback. I was like, what are we going to say about religious communities and parking lots and how they might be relevant? <laughs> and so you can consider me a convert on on that level. You know, Brian, what was, you, I think you said your first question was, how did you even get interested in the parking lot question in the first place, yeah. right? Like, I, it, it, it's a thought that like just came to mind and you, and you approach that and I'm glad it comes from an ethical place, but that was like in in our initial emailing back and forth. I was just like, parking lots. Well, I don't know where this is going. Like, okay. <laughs> well, and and um, John, I wanna I wanna highlight something that you just said. Um, you said something about the most freedom for the least cost, and that does make sense as a as an algorithm. But I wanna also mention that those values are American values. They may or may not be Christian values, right? I think that Christianity, yes, there's there's value to freedom in Christianity, but it's a special kind of freedom, right? It's the freedom to serve others. And you know, cost matters. You know, we don't want to we don't want to steward our resources poorly, but God is abundant and generous. And so I think I, I want to encourage congregations to look at their parking lots from a practical mindset, but also from a faith-based 
mindset, right? And there are other values, values such as creation care, values such as neighbor love, values such as evangelism and and spreading the word. You know, maybe maybe it costs a little bit more money, but it's worth it to paint a, a big message on your parking lot. I was reading about some white churches that were painting Black Lives Matter in their parking lots or, you know, something, right? I mean, there are slogans that you can put on your parking lot or there's, you can paint a labyrinth or create a shrine or, I mean, there are... There are values that matter even more. And I don't know how much we can expect society at large to share those values, but we can at least push for them, you know, and to say, all right, city that I live in, maybe it does cost more to provide really good bus service, but it's the right thing to do. doesn't matter that it costs more. It's it's good for people who, who deserve that dignity and should be treated as the children of God who they are. That'll preach. All right, Brian, that's your sermon for Sunday. <laughs> it's not, but... I- <laughs> It might it might be one day one go. day not not uh, in the in the future so I'm excited about that. Well, Laura, thank you so much for joining us for this conversation. It's been lovely and enlightening, and I think we all really enjoyed reading the material that you sent us. Uh, and we're excited for that book to come out. It sounds like it's kind of at the beginning of the writing process. Yeah, as you can see, I still have a ways to go. <laughs> But but when it does, we'll be happy to feature it on the on the bookshop for the podcast. Do you have a, a working title or anything right now? Uh, yes. Uh, the working title is Paving Paradise, Rethinking Church Parking Lots for Mission, Community, and Creation Care. I, I love the Joni Mitchell reference, especially yes. given that we're we're marking the 50th, 50th anniversary of one of her albums this week, and I'm, I'm completely blanking on it at the moment, but I'll add it in the show notes later. But uh, we like to try to wind down each week by just ending on a on a really positive note, talking about what's you know bringing us joy, getting us through the week if we're at a real low point. But I just kind of want to open that up to you guys. Like, what is your thing for this week that is just a, a real joy for you? I've got raspberries in my garden, and they're producing raspberries, and they're so delicious. They taste like sunlight and grace. I love it. I love it. I wish I had raspberries in my garden. What about you, Brian? So, you know, when you buy something and you're like just waiting for it to get there and because it's being delivered because, you know, it's 2021 and why would I actually go to a store? Well, our congregation is, I live right next door to the church. So the church parking lot conversation is a conversation I desperately want to have because it's my house, my yard, church parking lot. That's exactly how it works. And the church has been providing a lawnmower. Uh, it's one of the things that in our conference they're expected to provide. And my congregation has made a choice. It is an ecologically sound choice that I support. They have ordered a zero-point turn battery-operated mower that is on the way and i can't wait to drive it so the anticipation alone is giving me joy and knowing that it's a lot better than us using a whole bunch of gasoline and it has fewer parts fewer things to replace and this is way too much information but all of our power here comes from a nuclear power plant so I'm, I'm excited for, and there's all kinds of problems with that, but that's not what we're talking about today. But I, I'm excited to ride a zero-point lawnmower real soon. That's a gateway drug. You'll you'll get an electric car next. I've been looking at buying electric cars for weeks, and I just cannot make the math work on the on the prices for things. 
I need gasoline to just be a little bit more expensive to like push it over the threshold and make it so that that car payment would balance out. But uh, I've been so excited about the new Tesla Model S. So I'm going to make that my moment of joy is a car, an electric car that goes zero to 60 in under two seconds. That that is that is what is bringing me so much joy at this moment. Along, I'm going to say that might bring you joy, but that might be terrible stewardship. Like at the same time, Brian, I just want a car that I can buy special tires for that will take me 200 miles an hour and probably lead to some kind of horrific accident that I'm involved in. We probably shouldn't joke about such things. No, and we probably shouldn't like uplift cars and lawnmowers after we just had an entire conversation about car culture. Well, I feel like your endorsement of Amazon, Brian, is a little bit of a a rebellion against car culture, right? You're not going anywhere. You're sharing the resources and you're getting things to come to you. I never said I ordered it on Amazon. We just assume it's 2021. It's actually direct from uh, Home Depot, which is giving the church a rebate. So there you go. 8%. Oh my. Well, Laura, we've really enjoyed having you today. Where can people find you if they want to check out more of your work? So I teach at Roanoke College uh, in Roanoke, Virginia. So you can find me there. And I am also on Twitter, underscore Laura Hartman. That's my handle. All right. Well, we'll look forward to catching up with you again on Twitter in the Twitter sphere, along with all the other places we're on social media. You can check us out, and we always ask that you like, subscribe, and do all those wonderful things that every other single podcast in the world is asking you to do at the same time. But we're special. We are a special and unique and just scrappy little podcast and we would love your support so thank you guys for listening uh check out laura on twitter and look out for that book that is is coming out sometime in the near future hopefully have a wonderful week guys Hey guys, this is John. Thanks for listening to another great episode of Logosish. This week's music was by Audionautics.com. If you have any questions or thoughts, or if you'd like to have your music featured on the podcast, be a guest on the podcast, or suggest a topic for us to cover, send us an email to logosishpod at gmail.com. You can follow us at logosishpod on all the various social media platforms, and please like, subscribe, and review wherever you downloaded this podcast so that we can get the word out about all the stuff that we're working on, and we'd love to hear feedback as well. Have a great week.